The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're talking about fertility preservation, in particular elective egg freezing, with two top experts. Dr. Anna Cobo is the director of the cryobiology unit in the IVF lab at EV Valencia, and she is joined by Dr. Juan Antonio Garcia Velasco, the director of EV Madrid. Let's start with you, Dr. García Velasco. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, let's talk first about the technical details. From the, from the patient perspective, what does this entail for the patient? If they are choosing to elect to go for egg freezing, um, what do they have to do? Well, from the patient uh, perspective, it's quite simple and, and pretty straightforward. Um, obviously, they need to have a, a previous um, analysis of their ovarian reserve so we can establish uh, what is going to be the expectation of this fertility preservation. So they usually do a transvaginal scan to measure the, the answer follicle count or, or and uh, AMH values. We, we do estimate their anti-mullerian hormone any day of the cycle combined with the answer follicle count that, that can give you a very good estimate of, of what is going to be the outcome of the, of the stimulation. Um, and apart from a general uh, workout. And, and then uh, we will start the stimulation usually with, with the period, day one to three, uh, even though you can start almost any day of the cycle. And it's going to take about two weeks. So altogether, it's about eight or 10 days of stimulation with uh, self-injections, um, two to four ultrasounds to control the ovarian development and follicular growth, and then the, the oven pickup. So altogether, it's going to be around 12 to 15 days. And then once we obtain those oocytes, Dr. Kobo, how does this work from the lab laboratory perspective? What, what happens to them next? Yes, uh, when we harvest the oocytes uh, through the uh, follicular function as uh, uh, regularly performed, uh, what we do in the lab is wait a period of uh, two hours and then we remove the cumulus cells of these uh, eggs and proceed immediately with the vitrification procedure, which is, uh, I could say, is, uh, could say is a relatively easy procedure, but it definitely needs to be performed uh, in uh, expertise hands. So if you wish to, we can uh, talk a little bit more about the technical details, the procedure, and well, it's, uh, uh, all the implications for the IVF lab. Sure, absolutely. I, I, you mentioned the, the vitrification procedure, and uh, I know this is obviously something that has changed in the last few years a lot from kind of regular freezing to vitrification. Can you tell us a little bit about how that process has been, what has taken us from regular freezing to what we do today, and how it's different? 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, vitrification uh, has really uh, is a really a breakthrough in assisted reproduction because of all of the uh, chances and the new alternatives that brings uh, to the to our hands. Uh, the main difference from slow freezing, which was the regular uh, procedure, is that uh, with vitrification we avoid ice formation. Ice uh, is not compatible with life. Uh, if we have ice crystals inside the cells or even outside the cells, uh, it could be uh, really dangerous uh, to cells and could bring uh, uh, the cells to not survive the procedure. So, uh, what we how can uh, we achieve vitrification in the lab? The main difference with slow freezing is that with this uh, former uh, procedure, we need specialized machines, uh, programmable freezers, which was much more expensive than the vitrification uh, procedure. It takes around two hours, the whole procedure. It's a different from this point of view, but as I mentioned before, with vitrification, we need really expertise hands. Uh, what we do is subject the oocytes or the embryos to a very uh, high cryopeptide concentration. So uh, with this solution inside the cytoplasm, once we get the uh, eutectic point, which is a temperature below zero, uh, then this solution, this, these compounds, will not solidify into ice, forming ice crystals, but in a glassy state. It's a solid with a consistency of glass, and this is why uh, this is called vitrification. The whole procedure takes around uh, 12 minutes. It's a huge difference with vitrification, but the main difference is uh, absolutely the success rates that we can achieve with vitrification. Right. So, Dr. Garcia Velasco, to, to that, and from the clinical perspective, what has the, would you say, the impact of vitrification been both from the clinician perspective in terms of, of the process itself and perhaps a little more of, of from the perspective of counseling and what has the impact been to the patient that we can now do vitrification instead of slow freezing? Well, I think there's a, a huge impact of these new technologies as Dr. Kobo just described uh, based on the successful rates of, of thawing that we didn't get with this slow freezing. And, and this really has changed dramatically uh, many areas uh, where we work. First of all is the, the issue of fertility preservation as itself. So we can freeze all sites. We started with uh, cancer patients, those patients who are going to receive chemotherapy that is going to be toxic and may have an impact on the ovarian reserve and, and compromise the chances of having a baby in the future. Uh, they can now safely retrieve all sites before the chemotherapy and, and then safely uh, have babies later. In fact, we have frozen oocytes for more than uh, 1,400 patients in EVRMA group, and we have already uh, 48 babies uh, born. Um, so that, that's a, a, a routine technology that we use in this uh, particular group of oncological patients. But, but not only that, I mean, there's a huge impact also on social uh, fertility preservation, a huge demand from women who postpone maternity until when they want to be ready or they, they are ready to have a baby when they can have a baby. And, and they have this pressure from, not only from society, but also from biology. And they know that after a certain age, it's gonna be very complicated to be pregnant. So um, there's more and more uh, women coming to freeze all sites because they want to reduce this pressure and just freeze the all sites, continue with their lives, and when they're ready, come back and use the all sites and have a baby. Also with, uh, within what we do on a daily life, 
we have been able to avoid OHSS. And one of the reasons to avoid OHSS is because we can use agonist trigger, as we all know, uh, for those of you who are working in, in ART, that if you do agonist trigger, you have to freeze. And, and now we can freeze all sites, we can freeze blastocyst, and the survival rate is gonna be beyond 90 or 95%. Also, um, it has uh, allowed us to accumulate all sites in those poor responder patients, and we can accumulate all sites for embryos, pulled embryos, and then do a PGTA cycle in the future if needed. So there's a huge variety of indications where patients do benefit from this uh, big jump in technology that, that was uh, vitrification. That's right. And it, it seems that from what, what you're both saying, vitrification has really been clearly one of the biggest breakthroughs in the in the field of fertility preservation in general, both from the from the egg and from the embryo perspective. Um, this is a question perhaps for both of you, but Dr. Anakobov, you don't care starting. What role would you say EVRMA has played in, in the development of this technique? Um, what are some of the key studies that have taken us to where we are today? Sure. Uh, actually, uh, we were the pioneers in Europe uh, to uh, bring this technology to our labs. Um, we started in 2007. I have to say that this technology developed basically from the animal field uh, because, uh, as I mentioned before, the material uh, necessary to do slow freezing is uh, too expensive. So they started to, to research their research in this uh, field. And uh, there was a Japanese group, the leader was Dr. Uwayama, and they were working in a device, special device called the cryotop, which had the, one of the new, the latest developments in the vitrification procedure, which was the minimum volume. It means that we load the samples in the device within minimum volume. So by the, I have to say, uh, it was probably 2005, if I remember well, they uh, published a study with the application of this special device with uh, cancer patients. And then uh, we, that, that was when we uh, got interested in this special device. And we started this uh, procedure in our labs here in Valencia. Actually, in the, if I remember well, in 2008, we published our first study, which was conducted with all site donors, all sites, and we compared the embryo quality developed with fresh and vitrified all sites from the same cohort, and these all sites were inseminated with the same semen sample. So it was the perfect scenario to compare the potential of these vitrified all sites. So this was really the first, I would, I would like to say, the first tone uh, which uh, bring us to the, the scenario, the, the actual scenario that uh, we are. Uh, our next uh, studies were also uh, conducted with uh, the donors uh, oocyte uh, program. Uh, so the next most representative study was the clinical trial, the randomized clinical trial, in which we demonstrate the effectiveness of uh, this procedure. And then if uh, Dr. Garcia Velasco may come in, we uh, started the publication with the fertility preservation 
uh, either for social uh, freezing or with uh, cancer patients and lately in endometriosis. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, as you said, it's uh, one, one stone after the other. So you, you uh, started to develop the technology in Europe and, and brought it from, from Asia, from Japan, as, as, as you just mentioned. And, and we, I have to say, as a clinician at the beginning, I was uh, very skeptical. And then when you see the results, it was extremely convincing. Everyone wants uh, I have to say. <laughs> and it's interesting because uh, the, I think these Japanese doctors, they were trying to communicate their findings for a few years, but uh, probably the communication skills were not that great. And, and that, that sounds like a joke, but it's not. Uh, the truth is that uh, as soon as you visited Japan, you visited the lab, you brought the technology here, you brought the Japanese doctors to, to Spain, uh, we realized that it was a, a really big change and a, and a, and a I think one of the biggest steps after ICSI, uh, things that really changed the life uh, in, in ART. And, and as you just mentioned, we, you started uh, with the papers on, on donor egg vitrification, randomized control trial to convince that there's similar fertilization rate, implantation rate, and, and life death rate. And then we went on to a series of papers that uh, we have published around 10 papers on this topic in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. So in uh, uh, cumulative uh, experience on, on social freezing, uh, the first patients that had babies after uh, cancer uh, treatment uh, and, and freezing the eggs prior to this chemotherapy. Um, we just published together the, the, the largest uh, series of patients with endometriosis uh, doing fertility preservation prior to surgery and, and, and demonstrated that if you freeze your oocytes before the surgery, you're going you're gonna to have a much better outcome uh, in terms of fertility than if you freeze your eggs after the surgery. And, and all of these different indications that we are being discussing today. And I, I think it's a, it's a great tool that if it's done in, in a great lab with experienced hands, it's going to provide you as good outcome as fresh oocytes, but with the with benefit of stopping the clock. We're going to get back to the whole development and research part of it. But from the, from the patient perspective or from the, from the counseling perspective, if you're a clinician, who is this for? Why is it so important um, and who should consider elective egg freezing? Well, that, that's a good question. And in fact, Dr. Kowa myself uh, published a few years ago a paper was a, with a very, uh, I'd say, provocative title saying, pseudo women freeze their eggs. And, and of course, this is not for all the women in the world, it doesn't make any sense, mainly because most women will have babies uh, uh, without the use of ART. As, and we hope that that stays like that for many years. But the truth is that there's a huge uh, pool of patients or, or women out there that may benefit from, from this technology. Um, and I think the biggest indication today is selective social freezing, as you just mentioned. And elective freezing, uh, due to um, social reasons, I think it's, uh, it's an increasing demand. And I, I think it's a beautiful way to reduce the pressure on women to be forced to have a baby when they don't want to have a baby yet, or when they don't have a partner that they, they, they are convinced that they want him to be the father. And, and this is a daily conversation on the, on the clinic. You talk to patients and when you ask them, what's the reason to freeze your eggs? The main reason is not my professional career. It's not my, my I want to travel, I want to do everything. It's not like that. The main reason is I don't have a partner with whom I, I can have a kid. And I don't want to, um, to go too fast in the decision-making process when I meet someone that I want to have a family with. So by freezing the eggs, they reduce this pressure. But then I think there's a crucial point here that we as clinicians have to be uh, very, very clear and very careful. And it's mainly to avoid over-expectations. I think 
we have generated uh, enough data today that is a great tool to counsel this, you know, these women. And I think they have to be fully aware of what, what is the thawing rate and what is the success rate according to your age. So it's not the same freezing all sites when you're 32, then when you're 37, then you're 41. And I think this is very important, not to say yes or no to freeze the eggs, but to be aware of what is the possibility that if I come back to your clinic and I want to use my eggs that I froze when I was 38, what's the chances of them to survive? And what are the chances of having a baby according to the number of oocytes that I froze? Not the same if you freeze five oocytes that you freeze 15. So all of these uh, numbers and, and statistics, I think they need to be uh, clearly discussed with the clinicians. And, and probably this is the best way to provide a good care to our, our patients. And, and then, of course, there's a, a huge amount of other uh, indications that we discussed. But I think uh, elective social freezing is, is becoming um, something that is, is more social than medical, to be honest. And, and still these women uh, come to us because they know someone who did it. They don't come to us referred by a doctor, uh, unfortunately. And, and this is what probably we should think ahead. Thinking in the future, I think the future of, of, of OBGYM doctors will be to counsel women, not only on, on HPV vaccination and, and cancer prevention, but also on, on fertility counseling. And I think uh, part of the route visit to your OBGYN would be a short question, you know, have you considered having babies, yes or not? If they don't, that, that's the end of the conversation. But if they say yes, but not now, maybe that's a, a moment to explain briefly what it's uh, over in reserve, or the chance of having a baby beyond 35, and maybe to consider this. Still today, women come to us because they met in a dinner, in a party, or a jo at a job, uh, someone who did this procedure. And sometimes the ideas that they have, they, they come from the web and, and sometimes these over expectations are there and we have to sometimes to, to tune them down a little bit. So I think it's our responsibility to educate the society, educate our colleagues as, as general doctors and general OBGYNs and, and provide them this information and this training so they can properly uh, uh, educate the, the patients. There are two papers uh, published not long ago. One was a huge um, questionnaire done in Australia in, in university students. And the other one was among US doctors and, and was asking simple questions about, you know, do you do this? Do you counsel your patients about fertility? And what these two studies demonstrated is a huge lack of, of uh, knowledge, to be honest. And there is a big need of education that is being demanded by, by especially by our colleagues saying, you know, I, I need more time, but I need also more information on how to um, explain this to my patients. Yes, if I may add, uh, the mean age at which they are coming to have their oocytes vitrified is a confirmation of, uh, of, uh, of this that you are saying, because uh, the mean age is, is too old, is 38. So this is typically the population that we should uh, consult uh, for fertility problems. Uh, so I think there is really a, a need for these uh, information campaigns for them to come earlier to have their oocytes vitrified for fertility preservation. I would say in our last uh, studies, uh, we have analyzed the number of oocytes we need to vitrify to achieve a baby according to age. And uh, as you said before, 
Uh, even if you can, uh, a, a patient with a 41, 43 years old can achieve a baby, the possibilities are really, really low. And this is clearly uh, shown in the, in the course uh, we have published. So this is a reality. Sadly, they are coming too late for fertility preservation. Uh, because we know from the biological point of view, the possibilities are really, really high if they come uh, earlier than the, uh, in the early 30s. That's a reality. Absolutely. And in, in fact, I found it very interesting. There was a recent uh, publication from the or press release, I guess, from the Spanish Fertility Society that in the latest data they had from 2018, about 10% of births in Spain came from IVF procedures, which is incredible. It's very impressive. Yeah. And I, 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 I don't think clearly that this is because so many people, so many more people than before have fertility problems, but rather because a lot of people are definitely um, using fertility services to preserve fertility and to get pregnant later and are also more aware that all of this is available. Yeah, there's also a, a big handicap in southern European countries, uh, Spain, as you mentioned, but also Italy and Greece and Portugal. And, and, and we have uh, the oldest mothers when they have the first baby compared to uh, northern European countries or US, uh, for instance. And, and this is a big issue. I mean, this is a social problem uh, that is affecting medicine and ART. We, we are aging and we have, we're having babies at the later stage. Um, and there's a big disparity between social life and biology, as Dr. Kovo mentioned. When you talk to a patient at 40, she's socially very young, and she has still in front of her a future, and she's starting a family, and, and she's running marathons, and I mean, she's still uh, extremely strong and with a bright future ahead. But from the biology point of view at 40, uh, the ovaries are all near the end. And, and this discussion is a daily discussion with our patients because no one told them in advance. They didn't tell them at school. They didn't tell them in the annual checkup. And I think um, this information has to be, uh, has to be disseminated. I think we, we have to do this because otherwise we will always think, okay, well, maybe if I'm 40, it's not so easy to have a baby, then I do an IVF cycle and that's it. And, and we know it's not like that. And you have to have good oversight. So, um, Elective freezing is going to help them and it's actually helping today uh, women who postpone maternity, maybe not for too long, but maybe for three to five years. But if you freeze at 35, you can have babies at 40 with the X of 35, which is a huge difference from the clinical point of view. Yeah. What would you say are some of the most cutting edge things that, that are being talked about now in the, within the field of uh, this elective uh, fertility preservation? Well, I think, uh, and here we have uh, Dr. Kobo, which is an expert in, in the technology, but what I'm seeing uh, towards the future is, is uh, that most of the labs are trying to go into this automation and, and trying to uh, simplify the procedures by having machines doing what it's being done by hand today. Um, and, and now we'd like to hear Dr. Kobo's comment, but I think uh, all-site freezing is extremely sensitive yeah. procedure. It's not, it's not as embryo freezing or sperm freezing. And, and, and I think the technology has still a long way to be uh, developed uh, a machine that is efficiently freezing all sides. I think we are always uh, looking ahead and, and, and with our eyes open to see, you know, what is the technology today. The thing is going to be uh, not so easy. And especially because in the future, if we are dreamers, uh, we may expect that egg freezing could be a commodity. 
and you can go just to the next corner and just get your outsides out and frozen in a in a simple de uh, device that can be in any office and then you freeze the outsides and, and you can wait for the future but i think there's uh, so many things that need to be developed and improved and and, and trusted that they're going to work um, but this would be like a nice dream for the next uh, five ten years yes you are i i totally agree the the, the, the really uh, the real challenge right now is uh, the automation of the procedure because uh, as I mentioned before, the procedure is really easy and simple, but you need really expertise hands. And uh, I would say that the main drawback of the vitrification procedure is the lack of standardization. Not everyone uh, doing vitrification, not every lab in the world is achieving the, the same results. And then the question is why? Uh, this is an extremely sensitive procedure. So um, there are different uh, modifications and different uh, little things that everyone adds to the protocol. So at the end, it's a completely distorted thing. And uh, it, it, this is really a huge problem. So uh, since the more than 10 years, I've been, uh, people come to us uh, just asking why is it we, we cannot achieve the results uh, you achieve. So, so they came to our labs, they uh, uh, watch, they see all of our procedures, and then uh, I don't do this uh, thing like this. I mean, uh, there is a really, really uh, need of a standardization. And uh, when once, we have the possibility to have a machine able to vitrify and warm the eggs and the, the embryos in the same uh, same machine, same uh, protocol, then this would be a second breakthrough in the field of vitrification. We really need standardization of the protocol. And there are, uh, of course, things brought into the table right now, like the use of uh, slash liquid nitrogen, which is a... Uh, much cooler than the regular liquid nitrogen. It's around minus 200 uh, degrees Celsius or below. And uh, as you, when you mentioned before that uh, our dream would be to have our uh, all size or even sperms provided uh, in, in, I mean, like uh, easy everywhere in Israel, they are working in uh, leophilization. So probably the, this would be the. The, the, the future, uh, in my opinion, it's too far away <laughs> still, but probably uh, you could come to your home with uh, your sperm or eggs uh, just in an envelope and just store them for when, whenever you want to use them. Last week uh, on the podcast, we had Dr. Emily Osman from, uh, from Army, New Jersey, who was talking to us about the use of slush nitrogen in in embryos, yes. and it was actually very, very interesting. Also, a couple of weeks ago was uh, the ASRM conference, the ASRM Congress, and there was a couple interesting oral presentations about what uh, what Dr. Garcia Velasco was talking about earlier in terms of success rates and kind of actual return rate, how much people actually use these eggs that they have frozen before. I'll tell you very briefly about one of them that I found very interesting. It was from NYU, um, from New York University. And they basically looked at um, a, a relatively small sample of 231 patients um, who had 
essentially done elective egg freezing just for, for, for plant, for social cryopreservation. And they reported, um, they said this was the first study to actually report uh, final outcomes for, for, for how, many, how many of these patients actually come back and use their eggs. And they, they reported a utilization rate of 38.1% and a no use rate of 58.9%. The first, my first impression was that, you know, 59% no use rate was kind of high, but then I thought actually a 38% utilization rate is huge, considering this is something you do more or less preemptively. And it was pretty similar across age groups. Now, I, I know this is the first study to actually look at that, but do you have any data from, from within your groups that is similar to this, different? What is your experience and how many of these patients actually come back to actually use these eggs? And what are their success rates? Yes, in our, in our experience or in our in our uh, publication from uh, 2016, if I remember well, uh, for uh, elective fertility preservation, the return rate was around uh, 12 to 15 percent, and uh, I, probably it is because uh, I mean this is uh, um, they are. Uh, coming to use the size, but our mean age uh, for vitrification was uh, very high. So probably uh, in this specific population, uh, they finally uh, did, uh, have not uh, found uh, the right partner or uh, uh, there are many, many reasons why they that could explain they are not coming, but it's much lower in our hands. It's around 50% the return rate in elective fertility preservation. But when uh, there is a, a specific condition like endometriosis, as we recently published in our study uh, from um, this year, actually, uh, the return rate was around 50%. So half of them have returned to, your, to use their own sites because they have a condition that could be potentially harmful for the uh, um, ovarian reserve. So in this specific population, they are coming earlier to use aerocytes. So uh, the reasons why, I don't know, maybe uh, Dr. Garcia Velasco has another explanation or another point of view, why our return rate is, is uh, much lower than those results that you just uh, comment. Well, I, I, uh, I fully agree with you, Anna, and, and I think that the the return rate is very much correlated to the reason why you freeze. And, and this is why elective freezing, most of these women will never come back, more than half will never come back to use their oxides. Some of them will find a partner and will get pregnant spontaneously. Some others will never have babies, but they want to reduce the pressure that they have on themselves. But if you freeze for indication, as you mentioned with, with endometriosis, this freezing is part of the treatment. So they know endometriosis is kind of, um, eating their ovaries, it destroying their healthy ovarian tissue. They want to have a baby. Maybe they need to do a surgery or maybe postpone it for a few months or, or a few years, but they want to come back. So that's why I think we found a very high return rate, as you mentioned, around 50% in women with endometriosis uh, and very low in elective freezing and also low in oncological patients, which is around 10%. And, and again, the reason is that oncological patients, uh, when they freeze, they are significantly younger. Mean age is around 32, 33 years. So uh, they're young. A lot of these women will get pregnant spontaneously. Uh, the difference between the, the work from NYU and ours, I think it also depends on for how long you do the follow-up. So we, if you remember the first time we looked at this data, the return rate in elective freezing was only 6%. 
the longer we wait was up to 12%. And, and if we keep looking at this data, it will become probably 20, 30%. I think it's a matter of uh, how much time are you observing these patients and how long is the follow-up. That's a great point, actually, how, how long it's been since the retrieval is key to analyze utilization rates, of course. This has been such a great discussion with both of you. I, I really appreciate that you both were able to take the time to talk to us today. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been another episode of Fertilipod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Thank you.